Master Performance Coach, International Speaker, Podcast Host and Author. Known as the Can Do Coach, I thrive on enabling leaders to step up, shake it off and shine. Welcome to my podcast, The Can Do Way. My guests from across the globe have can-do stories of growth, resilience and success to share. Tune in and be inspired by these individuals who have developed a strong can-do approach. Each one of their stories is unique. Each one of their stories has a key message. In this episode of The Can-Do Way, I'm delighted to be talking to Peter Docker, author, leadership consultant and executive coach. Now, Peter is passionate about enabling people to unlock their natural talents. He teaches leadership that is focused on commitment and human connection. This approach harnesses the collective wisdom of teams to generate extraordinary outcomes. He illustrates his insights by drawing on examples from his previous flying and military careers to explain powerful concepts that can be applied to any business. A trained leadership consultant and executive coach, Peter's commercial and industry experience has been most at the most senior levels in sectors including oil and gas, construction, mining, pharmaceuticals, banking, television, film, media, print, hospitality, manufacturing and services across 93 countries. Peter also served for 25 years as a Royal Air Force senior officer, has been a force commander during combat flying operations and has seen service across the globe. He's been married to his wife, Claire, for 33 years and has two grown-up children from whom he learns a great deal. So welcome to the show today, Peter. Thanks, Gail. Lovely to be here. And it, it sounds as if I should be about 120 years old after listening to all of the things that I, <laughs> It is I quite done. a start. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How do we pack but all of that into, into our lives? Um, I think sometimes yeah. our listeners think, wow, these some of Gail's guests have so many, so much of a varied background, but that's what inspires people to see the lives um, through other people's eyes, but also to hear ways that they can grow and develop it. That's what the whole Can Do podcast is all about. So to get us started, Peter, if you could uh, take us on a short walk through your life, just to give the listeners a glimpse of your background and just tie some of those stories together and what it is that drives your passion for the work you now deliver. Well, I I started uh, really when I was around about 2021. I I left university mid-course can talk the reason I did that later, if you like, but mid-course to join the Royal Air Force, and I became a pilot, and uh, I uh, flew large passenger jets, VC-10s at the time. Uh, the age of 25, I found myself flying the Prime Minister, uh, which was uh, a surprise, probably not least for the Prime Minister, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I progressed. Um, I became a squadron commander, so that's leading the uh, the fighting unit, if you like, of the Royal Air Force. And our role then was air-to-air refueling. So we flew large aircraft, giving away uh, fuel to uh, to fighter jets. Uh, I was the, the British force commander during the 2003 um, Gulf War, Iraq War, 
um, and uh, led um, a couple of hundred people out in the desert. And that was probably one of my, my most testing times from a leadership perspective um, and weighed heavily on me. Um, and I, I did many other things in the Air Force. I taught leadership at the Defence College at Shrivenham uh, in the UK, which was fascinating. Um, I ran multi-billion dollar programs, which was very challenging as, as well. Um, but then after about 25 years, I thought, there's more I can do. So I left and I joined a consultancy uh, where it was nothing to do with military or flying, but everything to do with people. And we focused on industries where people typically got killed or injured. So oil and gas, construction, mining. And we taught them how to look after one another, lead in such a way that everyone went home safe, but also it had um, very positive performance as in business results too. So that took me to places in the Middle East, Africa, um, Kazakhstan, Russia, all sorts of places. But after a few years, I thought there's more I could do. So I, <laughs> I left and spent a couple of years figuring out, piecing together all the things I'd learned about people and leadership over those different careers. And it was during that time that I came up, um, came across this guy, Simon Sinek, uh, in the States, who wrote a book called Start With Why. And that inspired me. And I ended up um, I was invited by Simon to uh, to help share his message around the world. So for about eight or nine years, I worked alongside uh, Simon. I'd go and speak in many, many different countries, taking that message and some of my own. I wrote Find Your Why or co-wrote Find Your Why um, with Simon Sinek and my colleague David Mead. Um, but then after about eight years, I thought there's more I could do. So um, <laughs> it's just over three years ago. <laughs> A bit of a theme here, isn't it? And I I stepped away from Simon Sinek and I really wanted to focus on, um, uh, well, putting all the ideas I had into writing. And so that resulted in the book that came out just over a year ago called Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. And uh, ever since I've been taking that message around the world and uh, teaching companies how to uh, to use that style of leadership. So there we are, relatively short, but that's helped me <laughs> up to this day. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I love the theme because it just resonates so strongly with the whole show. There's this message of more I can do coming through in everything from the way, from where you started to, you know, why I love doing this show is to get stories like yours out there because it's saying to people, we often start doing one thing but that doesn't have to define everything that we do in our lives and that it's actually okay to challenge ourselves to do something different and to learn from the yeah. challenges and to continue thinking, what more can I do? What, How much more can I be? And, and that's yeah. a very strong message from you. So first I just want to go back to the testing times you said when you were in the Gulf in 2003. Yeah. And could you tell us a story perhaps of a challenge, one, one major challenge that you feel you were facing and what you had to do to actually perhaps shift your mindset to be able to win through that change and to thrive while you were doing that job? Well, a bit of context around that. I mean, some of your listeners may well remember the 2003 Iraq war. At the time, it was very controversial probably still is in some parts. Um, 
uh, about uh, the UK, America, Australia, and a few other nations who chose to to go into Iraq to um, unseat Saddam Hussein. And here's the thing: when you join the military service in whatever country, you know uh, you, you don't sign up and say, uh, uh, "I promise to do my duty," uh, except see footnotes one through ten. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. But equally. Um, in the UK, our, our military folks, um, uh, they think a lot, you know, that's what we want them to do. Um, they, they don't just follow orders, they do when they need to, but, you know, they, they think they're not machines. And when I took 200 people out to, well, it's an air base just southeast of um, uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, Mm-hmm. Uh, we're sat in the desert. We had these old aircraft, these VC-10s that were 40, 50 years old, not enough spares. Um, we carried fuel to refuel fighter jets. We were completely unarmed, had no defensive systems, and our job was to fly around in circles, uh, giving away fuel, and we often got shot at, which, you know, it gets a bit irritating after a while, <laughs> um, shot at from mm. anti-aircraft fire on the ground. Um, but, you know... As we approach the build-up to the start of that conflict, um, of course, we all had access to the news and the uh, well, the, the TV pictures of people protesting the streets of London, New York, uh, Paris, and elsewhere. And that's very unsettling, because when you're about to put your, your life on the line, you want to feel that the people that you represent are behind you, you know? And... Also, when you have that confusion in your mind, it can reduce your focus. And that's when accidents start to happen, particularly when you're flying aeroplanes. And so I knew that I had to get focus for my team. So shortly before um, the action started, as it were, we, we had a photograph it's the thing that the military does. <laughs> you get all your people together. If you're in the Air Force, you get them out on the what's called the aircraft pan on the airfield mm-hmm. where the aircraft are, mm-hmm. and you gather around. You have a photograph, and uh, to see who you start with. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I thought I've got to say something after this photograph was taken. I've got to say something. So I gathered all my people around me in a big donut with me in the centre. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I just allowed the words come out and. I turned to my aircraft engineers, the technicians who service the aeroplane. I said, guys, Mm -hmm. your job is to keep these aircraft serviceable so they're available for our pilot supply. I said, because, you know, I know that we have lack of spares and they're very old aircraft, but we're relying on you so as the aircrew can fly the aircraft. I then turned to the pilots, the aircrew. I said, guys, your task is to fly every mission that we're given because You see, our mission was to refuel fighter jets. And I said, unless those fighter jets get the fuel they need, they can't give the air support to our troops wearing British, American, Australian uniforms on the ground. And if those troops don't get the air support they need, they're going to die. And, you know, that's that was the crux of the matter. You know, it's not about the politics. Um, It's about the person to the left of you, the person to the right of you who wears a similar uniform, who's absolutely depending on you to do your job. And on the first night of the conflict, I saw off um, 10 crews, that's 40 men and women, flying these aircrafts, pretty darn sure I wasn't going to see them all back. 
I can tell you, girl, that weighed heavily on my shoulders and still does to this day. Um, thankfully, they did come back that night. The Some of the aircraft had sustained a bit of damage, but patched it up. They went and got some sleep, and then they did it again and again and again. And here's the thing. In four and a half months, we were tasked with 479 missions. We flew 479 missions. But most importantly, everyone that I took out there, I brought home safe. Fantastic. So, you know, thankfully not all of us are involved in that sort of um, situation, but Mm. there are great lessons, I think, that we can draw from it for everyday life and everyday business. You know, it, it comes down to the commitments we make and what I refer to as stands. You know, there's in my book, I define the difference between a position and a stand. A position is against something. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we hear a lot of that language in the news, the press. A lot of people talking about what they're against. And that's, you know, human nature. That's fine. But a position can only exist when there's a counter position, you know, by definition. As soon as that counter position goes, then your position dissolves because there's nothing to have a position against. But a stand is very different. A stand is for something. It's for what you believe. And the thing about a stand, Gail, is that it doesn't depend on anyone or anything else to exist. It's like having your own island and you plant your flag on the island, showing everyone what you believe, what you stand for. And ships sailing by, they can see what you stand for. And if they want to join you in your stand, then they can do that. It's fine. There's room for everybody. Mm-hmm. But here's the important thing if they don't, share that belief. They can sail on by, and that's okay. That's the critical thing about Stan. We must be okay with others who don't believe what we believe. Indeed. You know, and and so I, I think coming back to your original question, you know, how do we thrive? Um I there is a process to go through which started when I went to, to university. It's about identifying what's deeply important to you. Those non-negotiables, which when you can put them into words, turn into your stands. And those stands give you the energy and the courage to overcome the challenges that we face in life. And going back to the Iraq war, for me, I had a stand for my people. Mm. I wanted to take care of them. I wanted to bring them back to the families that um, I knew. And that guided me and gave me the energy to overcome the challenges that we faced. Um, so it comes back to this thing called a stand. Most definitely. And and thank you for that very clear um, explanation. I think the listeners, everyone will take something different from that. But one thing that really stands out for me, Peter, is that it was all around mindset and it was the it was your approach to put your people first that helped you to to win through that challenge as well because it sounds to me that you weren't just doing it for you. You wanted to make sure that everybody was playing their part and that they were okay about that and yet at the same time you were overseeing that you hoped each time that your teams would return to base um, after their uh, yeah, role was and, uh, and, you know, fulfilled. 
Uh, absolutely. And it was, I did everything in my power mm. to ensure that they had what they needed. And, you know, I flew the missions as well, but you, you have to, you know, the, the traditional idea of um, uh, always leading from the front, that's fine. But occasionally you need to um, be the one who's taking care of your people so mm. they can do the the job, you know, um, and helping them retain their their focus. Mm. So, you know, and actually a footnote to all that, Gail, is that um, several months into the deployment, I needed to start rotating crews. Mm -hmm. In other words, sending one crew um, home and bringing another crew in. You don't want to change everybody at the same time because you lose all your experience. So you, you have to start a stagger. Um, that was the only time I had to order anyone to do anything. You know, people who've got no um, knowledge of the military think it's all about orders. Well, it's not. During that um, four and a half months, I didn't have to order anyone to do anything. Mm -hmm. They chose to do what they were doing because they were very clear why they were there. The only time I did have to order was when I'd selected the crew to go home first mm -hmm. because they did not want to go. Mm -hmm. They felt that by leaving early in their eyes, they would be letting down everyone else. Yeah. And, you know, that perhaps um, just goes to show the, the level of uh, commitment mm. and um, dedication these people felt. And it was an honour to, to lead them. It really was. That just shows their... Uh, resilience through the entire adversity of the the conflict as well, doesn't it? That mm. they were being led in a way that they they wanted to stay a part of something because it really mattered to them. You you talked about that making a stand, and that was their stand as well, wasn't it? That they said, you know, I'm here for yeah, you know, a purpose, and then I'm being led toward that purpose. And so if I leave. I'm missing out on that purpose as well, and that really matters to me. That's right. You know, and we just coming back to this thing because it's so important. It goes to the mm. crux of um, everything that you, you really talk about as well, Gail. I think. Um, let me give you an example of what stands look like. All right. So, um, when I was eighteen, I went to university to study two subjects about which I knew nothing. All right. Uh, computer science and electronic engineering. This was back in the 1980s. So, you know, computing was was uh, just kicking off them. And I, I had it, found it difficult to get a university to accept me because I didn't have the, uh, the background, those subjects. But I did. And the reason I chose those subjects was um, I felt that uh, it gave me the best chance of getting a well-paid job afterwards. And it was not so much about the money. As such, it was about my parents. Both my parents at the time had lost their jobs. They were finding it very difficult just to get enough money to, to survive. And at the time, I could go to university on a full grant. The government paid. It was great. Mm -hmm. And so that was a great option. But I wanted to be able to support them. I didn't want to be a burden on them. Okay, I wanted to um, be independent. And that was the emergence of a first stands, you know, to, to be independent, not just myself, but to lift others up so they can be independent too. Um, but then halfway through my university course, something else in the world happened. It was 1982. 
mm-hmm. and the Falkland Islands, those tiny islands in the South Atlantic, mm-hmm. which are British, um, were invaded by neighbouring Argentina, who laid claim to them. And I remember at the time, I didn't understand the politics, but I was absolutely incensed that someone was imposing their will on others, because the islanders back then and still now consider themselves to be very British. And um, I left university mid-course to join the Royal Air Force to become a pilot, because I wanted to um, be a part of an organisation in future could support other people in that mm. sort of situation, mm. people who couldn't help themselves. Um, now, of course, it took me many years to become a pilot long after the Falkland Islands conflict was over. But nonetheless, the way I shape or put words to that stand is this feeling of mutual respect. Mm-hmm. It's a strong belief I have. So if I see anyone who is is not being respected, um, that really fires me up. Um, Often we see it in business, actually, between um, uh, when uh, women aren't given the opportunities that they deserve. And I had experience of of that on my squadron when I had some of the first women pilots Mm -hmm. join us. And that, for me, was the most natural thing because it's about mutual respect. So those are two stands as an example. Mm. Uh, One is independence and being able to um, uh, determine yourself and support yourself and others around you, but also this stand for mutual respect. And I have other stands as well, but we can all discover these stands by looking at the key stories and times of our life when we chose to turn left instead of carrying straight on. Mm -hmm. You know, I can remember all the professors at university saying, do you really, are you serious? You're going to leave? Halfway through, really? But no, my mind was set. Um, and it was because of the stand that I had and still have. Yeah, I think it's just listening to your story as it keeps unravelling is the stand is that important foundation that helped you to launch the what more can I do at each change that you have experienced in your life, the choices you've made, because it's... Yeah. It's always been something that has driven you to believe deeply in something. Um, from from the very beginning, as you said, it was about independence and elevating others to then the influence and impact of the Falklands conflict was next and then the rest has, it's rolled out. But, you know, every single time you have taken that approach and said, what more can I do, it has it has led to so many amazing things, not just for yourself, but for um, the people yeah. whose lives you've touched. And as you said, you have crossed 93 different countries across a very <laughs> varied um, types of industries and worked with people. So you've got that, you've, you've imprinted that people um, imprint in your life, you know, through your leadership and through all the work that you're delivering. Um, for the best and and I'm sure yeah. also enabled many, many people you've worked with to find their own stand as well. So the question I want to ask you now, Peter, I think we've covered so many different parts um, in our conversation today, but what would you say would be three nuggets of wisdom, those three can-do tips you could leave the listeners with? Well, everything we do 
that's important in life or important to us is driven by one of two things. It's either driven by fear or it's driven by love. If we allow ourselves to be driven by fear, we start to focus on ourselves. We disregard other people. We see the world as a place of scarcity. Um, and ultimately, we're driven by our own ego, which is Greek for I, it's all about me. But we always have a choice. And that choice is to be driven by love. And what love looks like is a perspective on the world where we see possibility rather than scarcity. Um, we don't think about ourselves so much as the people around us. Um, lifting others up. We lead with what I refer to as humble confidence, where we have the confidence of our strengths and our abilities, but the humility to learn from others. And the thing that links fear and love is courage. Courage can't exist without fear, but it can only be sustained by love. So the first point that I'd share with people is choose love to move forward have love drive you and love comes from our stands what's deeply important to us so that's the first one i think the second is be curious you know if we're curious about the world if we're curious about people we learn so much and also <laughs> people want to engage more mm -hmm. so uh i love and talk about leading when you don't know the answer. Because when when we get over um, that discomfort, because we all like to know what we're doing, we all like to know the answer. It feels good. It feeds our ego, actually. But when we get over that, um, then we unlock the potential in people. And part of getting over it is to lead with curiosity. It looks like asking the important questions rather than having a, a focus on knowing the answer yourself. And when we ask people questions and engage them, it lifts them up and they provide what I refer to as their collective genius to help you solve the challenges you face. So be curious is, is really, really important. And I, I think the, the last one, <laughs> which makes me chuckle, but it's so useful in times of difficulty. I think it comes from a Chinese proverb, you might know, Gail, but um, everything will be okay in the end. Mm -hmm. And if it's not okay, then it's not the end. And I think the, there's deep wisdom in that because often we can, we can find life and work really hard going. Um, but just keep, keep the faith, keep moving forward. Be led by love and your stands and recognize that all things will pass, you know, and in the end, it will work out. Beautiful. What a wonderful three tips for people to think about when they listen to your story today, Peter. And I know it's just a snippet of your life and um, there's more that people can find out from your books that you've written, the first one in conjunction with Simon Sinek and then your recent publication, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. So my final question for you, Peter, is why do you feel a can-do attitude is absolutely essential? It's not. <laughs> but it is if you want to 
make the choice to lead your life. We can go through life on autopilot where we are at the effect of circumstances. In other words, things happen around us and all we can do is react to those things. But in your words, girl, when you have a can-do attitude, when you just go for it, which was my personal motto in my early years in the Air Force, just go for it, um, then we start to lead our own lives. We make choices. We choose to turn left instead of carrying straight on. Yeah. And we cause things to happen. So I think that's why a can-do attitude is so important um, for all of us who choose to lead our own lives. And any of us out there who choose to lead others, then we can better lead others when we learn to lead our own lives uh, more. And it doesn't mean we've got to be perfect, far from it. I've made lots of mistakes, but I wouldn't be here now talking with you, Gail, if I hadn't taken the path I'd taken. So mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, it all works out okay in the end. It does. Um, but if we have a can-do attitude, we create those possibilities and we embrace the world and those around us. Fantastic. It taps right into your curious point that you made the second one. Mm. We can allow ourselves to be curious when we adopt that can-do attitude as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story today, Peter, and inspiring the listeners to think, what more can I do in my life and how much more can I be um, to give yourself a chance to find a stand of your own to be courageous, to believe deeply in something, but just to get out there and say, you know what, I'm going to make this stamp in this life. I'm going to have that stand and I'm going to make something happen. So thank you so much for being my guest today on The Can Do Way. You're most welcome. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Gail. Thank you for listening to my podcast, The Can Do Way. Do you live and breathe the can-do attitude? Since 2019, my podcast has gifted listeners across the globe access to an incredible selection of guests with stories to refresh your perspective, bring you joy and inspire can-do positivity. Always curious and with an insatiable appetite for a good yarn, I invite you to be a guest on my weekly show. If you have an inspiring perspective, a life-changing experience or an intriguing story to share, then drop me an email at gailmgibson.com. Until next week's show, do share the inspiration of the Can Do Way podcast with your friends, colleagues and clients and wherever you are listening from in the world. Remember to make every day an amazing Can Do Day.